on July 4, 1978, a family in Junction City, Kansas, would be awoken by a commotion across the street from their home. The family would gather at the front of the house, watching the events unfold. After several minutes, they would take notice that one of the children living in the home was not with them. They would quickly find she was nowhere in the house at all. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 19, The Disappearance of Beverly Ward. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact information will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. If you're not looking for perks, but want to just help out one time, I am also on Venmo at Midwest Pod. I'm currently sitting at one patron, so I would like to thank Laura for her help. Today's case is going to be a bit shorter. This episode has had a bit of a wonky evolution. Initially, it was planned to cover two smaller cases, the disappearance we will still be covering today, as well as a murder case that has had very little information on it. I was set to release at the end of the week of May 23rd. However, with the tragic events that occurred in Texas on May 24th, and the fact that both these cases involve children, I thought it best to hold off a couple of weeks. As even in work as important as this, I think we can all only handle so much tragedy involving children at one time. This also was causing me issues keeping my head straight and focusing while trying to finish writing the episode. As far as the case that I did cut from this episode, it ended up having very little information and was only going to cover maybe a page in my script. At the last minute though, I was able to uncover a news archive that had quite a few articles that I now need to look through. It will most likely still be a shorter write-up, but I will either release it just as a smaller episode or attach it on with another smaller case in a future episode. Lastly, I want to talk real quick about what brought my attention to Beverly's case, which I will be talking about today. Xavier's Warriors, Finding Missing Children, is a group on Facebook that brings attention to missing children, generally sharing news reports and missing flyers. The group is named after Xavier Harrelson, who disappeared from the mobile home where he lived in Montezuma, Iowa, in May of 2021. His remains were found just outside of Montezuma in September of 2021. His case is on my list of people to cover, but seeing as how it's not a terribly old case, and investigators were reported as still investigating leads back in March, I'm still holding out hope the case will be solved sooner rather than later, and an episode won't be necessary. As far as Beverly goes, I saw her missing persons flyer posted on the group's Instagram page and started to look into her case. If you're interested in spreading awareness for missing children, you can find the group by searching for Xavier's Warriors, Finding Missing Children, with missing all in capital letters. I do want to stress that they are an awareness and advocacy group only. So if you're looking to throw around accusations or discuss theories, I suggest you look elsewhere. They can also be found on Instagram at Xavier's Warriors. I highly encourage you to check them out. Now, 
on to today's case. Beverly Ann Ward was born April 17, 1965, to Carnell and Bernia Ward. There is little stated about Beverly's life, but she did grow up in Junction City, Kansas, and was one of eight children, having four sisters and three brothers. It was July 4, 1978, America's 202nd birthday, which may have been a day of celebration, barbecue, and fireworks for the Ward family. A friend of Beverly's, a nine-year-old girl Beverly had met through church, who had been staying with relatives across the street, had spent the night with Beverly at the Ward home, located at 227 West 11th Street in Junction City. At the very least, I can only imagine the two girls had nothing but fun planned with each other after they awoke that day. It was shortly after 5 a.m., however, that despite a warm 80-degree morning and the brightness of the day just starting to peek over the horizon, the warmness of the day would soon turn to a cold chill for the family, and a dark cloud would loom over them, one that still looms over 40 years later. It was in that early hour that the young friend staying with Beverly was awakened by one of Beverly's siblings. The sibling asked the young girl, quote, Did you hear that? The girl followed the sibling to the front area of the house for the family, of which there was reportedly only four or five in the home at that time, were watching across the street, where quite a commotion had apparently been made. Unbeknownst to the family, however, one of them was not part of the group watching the events unfolding outside the home. The young girl, who was staying the night, who has chosen to remain anonymous, told the Junction City Daily Union in 2014, quote, There was a big commotion happening. People said someone threw a brick in an apartment window over there. We were all listening to what was going on outside, and all of us just thought Beverly was with us. It wouldn't take long for Bernie Ward, Beverly's mother, to take notice and ask, Where's Beverly? The family would check the bedroom that Beverly and her friend were sleeping in, but would find it empty. And to add further fuel to the situation, the screen from the bedroom window had been removed. It was at this junction that Bernia Ward called the police, and Beverly was reported missing. Police would soon arrive. They would question the siblings and the parents, but no one had seen or heard anything. Beverly's friend had slept through whatever occurrence may have happened. The screen from the bedroom window was found approximately 10 feet away from the house. Any idea of Beverly being a runaway was ruled out almost immediately, as $12 Beverly was saving was left behind, as well as Beverly's backpack, which she had already packed in preparation of attending summer camp the next day. Her family reported that she was very excited to go. To what extent and distance searches for Beverly were performed is unclear, but police were sure to bring attention to Beverly's disappearance immediately. In a July 6, 1978 article from the Daily Union, Sheriff Chief of Police Jim Gross would state, quote, We have no leads at this time. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation has been made aware of it, but hasn't entered the case. It was also noted in the article that Beverly's information had been entered into the National Crime Information Center computer, which was a database that connected to law enforcement agencies across the country. A July 20th, 1978 article would note that the FBI began to assist with the investigation. While there is very little else readily available on Beverly's case at the time, later news reports indicate the police have admitted to there being three different suspects at the time. 
Two of the suspects were labeled as such after a neighbor reported seeing a vehicle which belonged to one of the suspects near the residence around midnight. It's been noted, though, that this was earlier than the suspected time frame that Beverly disappeared, which was between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. The third suspect was identified when investigators began giving their attention to people living in the area of Ward's home. The suspect in question was seen in the area in the days or weeks leading to the day Beverly disappeared. This one confuses me a bit because anyone who lived around the wards was going to be seen in the area. So I can't help but wonder if this individual had been seen skulking around the actual property or was just abnormally close in situations where he didn't have to be. It's never been made clear either way. No strong evidence was ever found for any of the suspects, however. And as far as the public knows, no one else has ever been seriously looked at. It has been noted that Junction City, which in 1978 sported a population of just over 19,000, was also a largely known transient community, where a large number of people would either live for short periods of time or would just pass through, staying for just days at a time. So, there has always been the possibility that the non-local saw a movement of opportunity and has been long gone since then. Over the years, police would follow up leads, but the bulk of the investigation was handled in the time shortly after Beverly's disappearance. In October of 2014, Junction City Police Sergeant Corey O'Dell would tell the Daily Union, quote, Leads were followed up on, in this case, through roughly 1995. People came forward in the 1990s stating they had possible information about the case. Those leads were followed, but didn't provide a whole lot of insight into the case. The article also provided some insight via a picture provided by Sergeant Odell of the property where Beverly's house had stood. There is currently a newer home on the property as the original was demolished. The photo is not shown in the article, but the article states it shows the rear view of the ward home which opened into a large yard with no privacy or chain link fence of any kind. There was a single door located on the right side of the back of the home with three windows to the left, one of which would have been Beverly's. A small tree line would have shielded neighbors on the right side from seeing anything happening outside the windows or back property of the house. From how it sounds, the bedroom would have been easily accessible to anyone walking toward the property from the rear, and would not have been easily seen, depending on the onlooker's vantage point. In a follow-up article from December of 2014, it is revealed that the current investigators were unaware of the young girl who stayed the night with the wards on the night Beverly disappeared, as well as the disturbance that woke the family. These things were only discovered after the young girl, now a grown woman, came forward sometime in late 2014 and spoke to the Daily Union. When asked about this, Sergeant Odell would merely state, quote, That's news to me. He also noted that there was no mention of the disturbance across the street in the case file. He would note, though, that he would look for a separate report that may have been taken, stating, quote, Most reports from that time are written on index cards. We have them. I can go through that time frame and see if I can find that disturbance call. As far as the girl staying in the ward's home and her not being mentioned in the report, Odell stated that the officers on the scene may have thought that she was a younger sibling and marked her down as such. Either way, he appears to be happy to have the information stating, quote, This is a help. It's a lot more to go with. 
every little piece I can run with now is more than I've had. Sergeant Odell was also attempting to make contact with the witness, but at the time of the article had had no such luck. It was also stated in that article that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, with whom Odell was attempting to get Beverly listed with, was requesting familial blood samples. At the time of the article, two siblings had agreed to submit samples. I want to note, since that time, Beverly has been listed with NCMEC, and they have provided age-progressed photos, which I will be sharing on social media. Before the article ended, it noted that Sergeant Odell had been on the hunt for physical evidence in the case. He knew that at the time, investigators attempted to lift fingerprints off the window, but were unable to find anything. Odell had been to three of the four locations where old evidence was stored, and had found some, but wasn't expecting to find more. He told the Union, quote, The only physical evidence I've found so far is the window and the pieces. Not glass pieces. Peripheral pieces. From the frame of the window. That's the only physical evidence I've found so far. The last update came in 2018, when the Union reported that Junction City Police had asked the FBI to enter the investigation. It was noted by police that there was no specific event or breakthrough that required the FBI's assistance. They were merely doing everything they could to help move the investigation to a conclusion and hopefully finally have some answers and justice for the Ward family. One other thing that I don't want to dive too deeply into, but it may be worth noting. In my digging into the case, I came across some connections between the Ward family and the Faith Tabernacle United Pentecostal Church in Junction City. According to spiritualabuse.org, a website ran by a former Pentecostal member and preacher, Lois Gibson, the Ward family, including Beverly, attended the church. And Beverly's sister Brenda would later marry Edwin Young, who would later go on to preach at the church. From what I've read about the church, and based on some sermons I listened to online, the church seemed to be highly oppressive and overly homophobic. The connection to Beverly was first made online when the son of Edwin Young and Brenda, Jordan Young, was arrested for multiple counts of sexual assault toward minor boys in the church. While spiritual abuse was reporting on this particular circumstance, Several former members of the church contacted Lois Gibson and informed her of Beverly's connection to Brenda, and as well as the way the disappearance was handled within the church. It was basically said that no one spoke of the disappearance ever, except for in hushed tones and whispers, something that continues to this day. Lois also noted that at least one person was trying to get bigger media involved and to look into the connection between Beverly, Brenda, and the church. To be clear, neither Lois or her website makes any actual claim that Edwin, Brenda, or anyone in the Ward family was involved with the disappearance of Beverly. The family had been ruled out quite early in the investigation. She just thought, as do I, that investigators taking a deeper look into the church wouldn't be a bad idea on the chance that someone in the church, parishioner or otherwise, was responsible for Beverly's disappearance. I'm really not going to do much on theories here, as there is little to go on, and speculation would be beyond rampant. The only thing I can say is that while it is noted that the town was a transient community, this abduction definitely seems like it was done by someone who knew the area and knew exactly who they wanted. 
Grabbing a kid from a park or a front yard is one thing. Removing a window screen and entering a house when the parents are home in the dead of night is almost another thing entirely. Not to say stranger abductions haven't happened in this matter before, because they definitely have. And we can't rule that out completely. Whoever did this knew what room to strike, and knew they had decent cover to get away, most likely unseen. It's even been speculated that a brick was thrown at the window across the street from the ward home just to cause the extra distraction, so that it would be that much easier to sneak around the back. It wouldn't even have to be anyone seemingly close to the family. It could have been a neighbor, a fellow church member, or even a citizen who is in the area often, who just had to watch and wait for their time to strike. This July will mark 44 years since Beverly's disappearance. I wish I had more to say about her as a person, but so little has been reported on this case, as well as on Beverly's character, so I unfortunately have nothing to go on. I do know, however, that a young girl, who still had her teenage years ahead of her, years that she could have had to mold herself into the best person she could be, had that time and beyond taken from her, when some sick scumbag decided to enter her room and take her away, most likely to her doom. Not only that, but a family was left without a daughter and a sister, and a nine-year-old girl was left without her friend from across the street, none of them knowing what could have possibly happened to the 13-year-old girl they all loved so dearly. Both of Beverly's parents have passed away since her disappearance. Beverly herself was declared dead seven years after her disappearance. They're still siblings, and what appears to be some very invested investigators out there looking and hoping for answers still. I encourage everyone to share this podcast or any other sources you may choose to look at. The more Beverly's story is out there, the more likely someone's memory can be jogged, even after 44 years. 13-year-old Beverly Ann Ward was last seen at her home, located at 227 West 11th Street in Junction City, Kansas. She was sleeping in her back bedroom when she was taken, most likely between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. on July 4, 1978. Beverly is described as an African-American female with black hair and brown eyes. Beverly was born with an extra bone in her middle finger, which looks like a partial finger. She has moles on her face and a mark on her chest. She's listed as being 4 foot 8 inches tall and weighing 54 pounds. She was reported to be wearing a green nightgown at the time of her disappearance. If alive today, she would be 57 years old. Foul play is suspected in Beverly's disappearance, and she is presumed to be deceased. If you have any information on the disappearance of Beverly Ann Ward, please contact the Junction City Police Department at 785-762-5912. To submit a tip anonymously, visit www.crimestoppers.com to send tips through the web, or you can text TLPJC, followed by the information to be given to 27463. If you're looking for any additional information, there's not much else out there. The Daily Union has done most of the coverage, modern articles can be found easily, and Beverly's page on spiritualabuse.org has scans of articles from 1978 posted. Once again, I apologize for a bit of a shorter, less informed episode. Like I had originally said, this was going to be about two lesser-known cases, but I need a little additional time with new information found on the second case. 
So that is all I will have for you guys today. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relative to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.